friends, this is Anja Viktorovic with PMR Rescue Radio. And today we are talking about what to do after the avalanche and um, how to help people survive. With me today, I have Heiko Stapsek. Hi, Heiko. How you doing? Good. Um, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Um, again, my name is Heiko. Um, I am a professional paramedic with King County Medic One and the King County Sheriff's Department uh, on the air support unit that provides search and rescue air rescue for the Pacific Northwest. I'm also a member of the Hood River Crag Rat team um, and providing rescues uh, on Mount Hood and the surrounding areas with our fellow partners, Portland Mountain Rescue. I actually met you at one of our missions two years ago. Yes. It happens to be an avalanche rescue too. It has to be an avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, thankfully, it, it wasn't as tragic. It ended, everything ended well. But yes, yes, that's very true. Yeah, that's true. So let's talk about avalanche. Uh, Heiko, um, usually when, when people are taught about avalanche rescue, they taught about how to find a person, how to dig them out, different methods of digging. And then, but we don't really get taught about what to do after everything happens. What do you do after you pull the person out? How do you keep them safe and how do you help them? Can we talk about that? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, and it's become a, a, a passion of mine of uh, reinforcing the knowledge that we have already as rescuers and even as the public recreational folks that are out there touring and really just strengthening the chain of survival uh, for our avalanche rescue victims, which because time is of the essence and we can do a lot of good if we're prepared. So let's talk about um, what can we do? Uh, education is, is huge. Um, I would, and this is just my idea. Uh, when I started uh, avalanche education as a instructor in backcountry ski uh, guide, um, I always noticed that we taught avalanche rescue, uh, how to extricate someone, find them with a beacon, then extricate them out of the snow. And then I kind of watched the curriculum just stop right there. Right. And as a, param a paramedic for years, I was like, okay, we got to do something. And we always left it at, hey, okay, if you get the person out of the snow, call 911 and get help. Well, help is right there standing in the snow. And I've seen that over the decades is that, is that if some people at home, if they have a cardiac arrest, survival is just gigantic if someone starts pushing on the chest and opening the airway. Mm -hmm. So that's my message. I want to get that out to the public and improve training and combine rescue training with first aid CPR training into one curriculum. Because avalanches usually happen far away from help. Um, I don't know about other places, but Mount Hood's rescue takes, on average, 10 hours, if not more, depending on conditions. Yeah. And the, one of the quickest air rescue missions I've ever done in my career, um, from the time of call to getting on station, was 45 minutes. And that was a river rescue. So mm. air rescue is dependent on uh, weather and conditions. So that's that's a luxury. That was a rare event. Right. And it happened to be a, a drowning in the river. but. Yeah, so we're going to rely on the companions and then the organized rescue teams to come in and back those companion ski tours out there. Unfortunately, we're not in Switzerland when they pluck you off the mountain in 15 minutes. 
<laughs> yeah, we're not that lucky. <laughs> and hand so you I, a, I hand you a cappuccino right away. And that's why I think you know training and education and getting this message out to everybody is vital if we want to improve survival among avalanche deaths. So, can you talk about numbers when we're talking about survival? Yeah, survival. So, avalanche accidents have an average death rate of twenty five percent. If you feel yourself moving on that slab, put that in your mind that you have a one four chance of dying at that moment. And so how do we uh, improve that? You have to have a companion to witness that. The chance of surviving a complete burial, which is defined as head and chest below the snow, is about 50%. So if you are only partially buried and your past guest, Dr. Van Tilburg, talked about wearing an airbag. Um, so if you're partially buried, which airbags are going to help you achieve that, the chance of survival is about 95%. So, mm. you know, um, we need to get the vi- to the victim fairly quickly. Um, and then if you're rescued or uncovered, your airway is opened within 15 to 20 minutes after a complete burial, again, the survival rate is about 90 per- 90%. And most of those deaths are caused by asphyxia 75% of the time. And 25% of the time, they are caused by trauma. And in the Pacific Northwest, as we all know, the terrain that we have, it's not just soft, fluffy snow that's dragging us down the mountain. It's, and as that happens, yeah, we're going to be run into trees and rocks and all kinds of objects. So the likelihood uh, for us to face as rescuers, uh, a victim that has a traumatic injury and an asphyxia problem or suffocation problem is great. So Mm-hmm. Again, we need to be aware of those possibilities. So, so let's say you, you pull the person out of the snow. What are the next steps? How do you make sure that you keep them alive? Well, we always, as we're, we get a probe strike and we're shoveling, um, we really want to focus on trying to get to that head and exposing the airway. And it's interesting to find in the study that I was uh, looking at a few years ago that was presented at, in the 2018 ISSW, after they did the probe strike and hit the patient, it took another 10 minutes to uncover and get that person in the CPR position or a good position to perform that CPR. So we really want to get to that airway. And a lot of times, um, if we can just open that airway, scoop out the snow or whatever's in there, we can get that patient breathing and then we can breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief and relax and then expose the rest of the body. But if we can get to that airway, that's our priority. The other, the person has suffocated. So we're dealing with lack of oxygen to the brain at that time. And then also we may have to deal with hypothermia. We're going to have to be prepared to keep that person warm and comfortable until organized rescue gets there. Yeah. In talking to you right before we started recording this, you said only 1% of people mm-hmm. die of hypothermia, correct? Yeah. Surprisingly, you would think that uh, those folks, uh, that would be a greater number, but the cause mm-hmm. of death in, in um, one study looked at it was 1%. And, uh, but again, there's an average cooling rate of about three Celsius per hour from burial time to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So we, cooling still happens And it doesn't mean that you can't die from hypothermia between the time you got out of the the snow and to the hospital. So again, the job is is very important to keep that person warm. Are there any times that you would not perform CPR on the person? 
when you pull um, them up? Yes, there are those times, and that's a difficult situation. There was, uh, uh, I was at work yesterday, had a call that was not an avalanche call, but it was just a normal CPR case that had trauma involved. And that was even difficult to decide whether we should do it or not, despite the, uh, the very dramatic injuries. But we gave that person the, the benefit of the doubt and attempted resuscitation. Um, in the snow, and I'm going to go slowly here, <laughs> that if there's obvious injuries of death, like major head trauma, major bleeding out, if the burial is deep or longer than an hour of burial time, and the person on your cardiac monitor is flatline, it's probably a good time not to, the likelihood of surviving that is good. Mm-hmm. That's not good, excuse me. So yeah. it's o- over an hour, deep burials, not a patent airway and ice masking, you know, with ice over the face and things like that. Got it. So once you start CPR, let's say you decided, okay, the person has a chance. When do you stop, Heiko? <laughs> <laughs> for, I think for the, the lay public, uh, what we always teach everybody is uh, when you're tired. And this could be a situation where our recreationalists are on a far point of the mountain or uh, and storming and dark or they're da- it's dangerous for them to stay in that spot. And they may have been doing CPR for an hour and they just can't do anymore or they have to extricate themselves. That's a good time to start or to stop obvious injuries of death that are life-supporting. Heiko, as as more people are recreating outside, especially now with the pandemic, we've we've seen um, Mm. a rise in people just spending time outside. What would you suggest? Like how how much training should the regular public get? Uh, As much as they would like. (laughs) But I think they should start out with uh, a, a basic first aid. And if they can't you know, just because we're recreating in the outdoor, I think people put the label on, oh, I need to take a wilderness first aid class. Um, if they can't get to a wilderness first aid class, mm-hmm. then the basic Red Cross or American Heart Association first class will do. Because it, it does give them the confidence and the knowledge of, of treating other injuries that may happen. Mm-hmm. And then not only it's your own companions, but this community of, of backcountry users I think we're kind of responsible for each other. So if we witness something happening, then they can take care of that. But they are, and that is responsible uh, responsibility of us mountain rescuers to promote that because they are the first, and I believe the strongest foundational link in the chain of survival. We cannot have good outcomes as mountain rescuers without them. And if we want to have good survival rates, it's up to us to, to promote that. Right, and it's it's fairly cheap to take a course and you can do it online, right? Right. What about all of the guides and um, rescuers? What about us? <laughs> us, yeah. Organized rescue teams. We're all professionals, whether we, we get a paycheck or not. We do have, I think, a, a responsibility to get definitely the basic first aid training. We have the ability to become uh, EMR or emergency medical responders or EMTs. Um, I think definitely that someone on your team needs to have some sort of advanced certification in that response team. And there was an interesting thing in this, and the one study that came out of Europe from uh, Dr. Brueger and uh, Dr. Strepazone, that uh, in this study, which was in Europe, they found that 75% of the rescuers and other healthcare providers that are involved in managing these avalanche victims did not train together and did not really mm. 
focus on the avalanche rescue training. So I think uh, as, you know, rescuers, you and I have a, we could do a better job. Right. Especially training together. I think it's very beneficial. There's a lot of resources out there for the lay public to take that, take medical courses. And there's also resources for us rescuers to get more education on, on this topic. What courses would you recommend for, for just a regular person who recreates outside other than CPR? CPR, uh, the basic first aid class, I think, is, is mm-hmm. a good start. Um, Knowles, um, Red Cross, American Heart, they all have mm-hmm. um, first aid curriculums. And I think Red Cross has the wilderness uh, add-on to that first aid. Okay, great. So, Heiko, what happens when the person starts CPR and the, the patient has a chance of survival? How do we deal with getting person from the accident all the way to the hospital while during CPR? That is a great question. Um, that will take a lot of person power and resources that back to that number of 75% of, of professionals don't practice on that. And I really want uh, our teams to start thinking about practicing this at least once a year, if not twice. So if we have that patient that is in that sweet spot of suffocating or asphyxia death, that's in an air pocket that is under an hour that has the right hypothermic temperature that's cooled off enough. We can keep that person alive with a large amount of resources with ongoing continuous CPR. And then we're going to have to transfer that person to a regional center of a hospital to get ECMO, which is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, cardiac bypass from layman's terms to resuscitate that person and have a good outcome. So it's going to take resources and that we're going to have to assemble on that hazardous environment and get them out. So you just keep doing CPR until until you get... Yeah. And it has to be high quality CPR. And Mm -hmm. the successes that we've, uh, that I've seen in my career in the King County EMS system, where we our our survival rate stagnated for a while out of hospital cardiac arrest in the urban setting. And we just went back to basics. We were focused on high performance compressions, good ventilations, uh, all those basic fundamentals and our numbers jumped up dramatically. So it's not the fancy equipment. It's human power and human knowledge that's, it, that's going to ha- save the day for these people. I would inspire our teams to get together. And for me, it's just the idea. Um, there's going to have to be people, people that are smarter than me to go figure out how to organize all of us to come together and, and get that accomplished yeah. in, the, in the right way. I totally agree. Yeah, we, sh- we should do more working together. So, Heiko, do, are there any studies or, like, did you test your your hypothesis about survival when you do CPR right away after the person is uh, dug out? Just to validate for myself, it was not a um, organized research project. It was just kind of to, to <laughs> validate my notion if this was the right direction. So, a few years ago, I put on some free clinics and combined a American Heart Association eight-hour first aid class excuse me, 16-hour first aid class with an avalanche rescue class. And I was had about 20 students total, two separate things. Sessions. Were they rescuers yeah. or just lay No, these were just lay people off the street. Mm-hmm. One of the local Hood River retailers allowed me to use their store. We put up a sign. Um, awesome. I charged $20 fee, and everyone came in, taught rescue, and then we taught 
first aid and Mm -hmm. really focused on what to do after you extricate the patient and getting the airway open and doing CPR. They were totally enthused about it and they loved it. A couple of things I was a benefit benefit to them was one CPR in the mountains in the snow is hard mm. and it's difficult Two, but everyone just finished digging the person out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's exhausting. Uh, it's exhausting. Yeah. And then those accidents usually happen on your way home. So you've been out touring all day or traveling. And so you're tired and hungry and you just want to have pizza and beer. And now your friend ruins the day and now you have to <laughs> dig him out. Um, <laughs> So I made them uh, do CPR for six minutes. Uh, So three separate people got to do compressions. They learned that you need to keep your gloves on. You need to be warm yourself. And then what to do once you've resuscitated that that person. And that was really impressed on them that this is dangerous terrain that we're in. This terrain will bite back. And they just decided uh, after I asked some questions that, hey, what what's going to change in your behavior? And it's like, we need to pack for more first aid gear. We need to prepare to be out there longer. So I'm going to maybe bring an extra puffy or maybe pack a sleeping bag. I'm responsible for my companion. I'm not going to travel by myself in the mountains. And the biggest thing that I learned or they learned, or I'm going to say that I learned when I asked, does this change your decision-making process in avalanche terrain? And a hundred percent of my class said, a lot of students said, yes, I will choose more wisely when I go out in the train I ski in. So giving them delay public realistic scenarios and training and knowing that it's hard and cold and miserable does affect their decision making and hopefully make them safer. I can attest to whenever I take medical course, it makes me think more about what I will take with me. Because you usually try to go fast and light, so you don't bother to take the extra layer. Or, but it really made me rethink my my uh, uh, things that I take with me into the mountains, because mm-hmm. it could be the difference between one extra puffy or a little stove that you didn't bring. Yeah, and with the increase of users in the mountains in the backcountry is that again, this is a community and that we are responsible for each other out there. So the likelihood of someone, us coming across, someone hurt or lost or injured is, is, is greater now than it used to be. So you have to take care of those people. I think if we had, if we really viewed this as a public health problem, yeah. and I know the numbers aren't that great of deaths, there are, there are infants that die every day at birth, a lot more than people die in avalanche terrain. But this, this but is if, preventable. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so if we could, training is big, training the, the lay public is easier. And as I become more of a, more involved in rescue and more tenured in, in a professional rescue setting, avalanche rescue, th- there's more training for us to be done. Um, so we're, I feel that we're underprepared and we could do a whole lot better. And we just rely too much on the system that we have already. So while while waiting for the rescuers, what can you actually do? A lot. There's a lot to be done. Um, mm-hmm. In that uh, trial class I did, um, I also focused on uh, the trauma management side of things. Remember, one in four chances or 25% of the, the deaths in avalanche terrain or injuries are trauma-related. You may extricate your person out of that that snow, and now you have a broken arm, a broken pelvis, 
an open arterial bleed. So uh, in my experience, I kind of went back and said, what, what kills some of my patient quickly that I've seen over my career? And that's bleeding to death, uh, hypothermia, and really bad fractures and airway problems. So we focused on that. And so I taught them how to put a tourniquet on, hypo wrap folks and keep them warm. Uh, we talked about maybe uh, binding pelvises and putting splints on and getting those patients uh, treated with meaningful, basic, fundamental trauma care will also save the day. So that wasn't, we just didn't focus on CPR and asphyxia. It was the whole package because, you know, trauma happens. Right. You may be lucky and the person is breathing. They just really hurt. If you just look at some, a lot of the avalanche accidents on NWAC site and you read uh, the accident reports, you see a lot of trauma injuries involved. That's the other part so of the package that, that we need help in from the public too. Yeah. So what would be, what would be the injuries that are usual with avalanche? Head injuries, chest trauma, abdominal, all kinds of internal injuries, long bone fractures. And then the, the big insidious one that I think that will sneak up on anybody is hypothermia. And the more that we can prevent that, the more we can protect that person from this cascading effect of, of hypothermia where they get bleeding issues, there's after drop and all kinds of crazy things that, that again, putting a blanket on somebody, keeping them warm will make our job easier. Um, any parting thoughts, Heiko, before, before we, um, we part? I feel that if we take us take a closer look at this aspect, treat avalanche rescue and injuries and death like a public health problem, approach it the same way we do without a hospital cardiac arrest, teach our public CPR, teach them basic first aid and survival skills, that we will increase the chances of survival for these victims because it, they're the ones that witness it. So we have 350,000 cardiac arrests a year in the United States, which has um, about a 10% survival rate. Someone was witnessed to have a cardiac arrest. That person's survival rate is 39.5%. So our focus needs to shift to the lay public that witnesses that avalanche accident and then also bolster the professional community's experience and training on responding to those folks. Excellent. I know that before I took any kind of training, whenever I saw an accident, I would just stand there because I would be frozen with fear and not knowing what to do. And I think the only way to get rid of it is just training and training and training because it will automatically kick in. You will not yeah. think you'll just start doing what you've been training to do. So that's why I think it's really, really important so all of, your, all of your points here are super important, Heiko. The one study that looked at getting the folks out of the snow into CPR position, and they did multiple scenarios of that, every time they tested them, their times got better and better and better right. in that one day, one day test. So your point is right. exactly right. We just need to practice. Practice makes perfect. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this year we started something new. We're doing trivia questions and I asked Heiko to come up with one and I think you came up with two trivia questions. Do you want to ask it? And so we, we will ask people to, if you know the answer, go um, to, to your email and email us at rescueradio by PMR at gmail.com. So it's rescueradio by PMR at gmail.com and send your answers 
and we'll draw a winner and you'll get some PMR swag. <laughs> Thanks, no pressure. If you believe you have a hypothermic avalanche victim, how long should your vital sign, your pulse and respiration check take? Thank you. So if you know the answer, email us at rescueradiobypmr at gmail.com and we'll uh, pick a lucky winner and you'll get a PMR swag. And we have a winner for last month's trivia question. But before we reveal the name of the lucky winner, uh, here's the question again. Not too far from Ice Nine Climb, there's a really famous ice climb called Polar Circus. But that wasn't the original name. What was the original name of the route? And the answer is Polish Circus. And the winner is, drum roll, Bruno Robitail from Canada. Congratulations, Bruno. Uh, we will send you an email. We will contact you via email. And thank you to everyone who played. We got a few other responses. Keep playing. You might win some really awesome PMR swag. Heiko, thank you so much for coming over and, and talking about this really, really important topic. We really need to make sure that people are aware why training is so important, and it's really not hard to get trained on it. Uh, thanks for having me. It's just an honor and privilege, and you're so right um, that it's easy. Just go to your local community college, your fire department. They have first aid training. We have a lot of local avalanche providers that offer uh, avalanche rescue training. Who knows, someday we'll develop a curriculum that combines both and we can have fun in the snow. Amen. Thanks for tuning in today. Um, you can check us out at pmru.org. We also have a Facebook page under Portland Mountain Rescue and an Instagram page under Portland Mountain Rescue. Um, I like to give a special shout out to our editor, Mari Feher, who's doing an amazing job making it sound smart and beautiful. Thank you, stay safe until next time.